Um, for those of you who are new, I didn't even introduce myself. I'm Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Hanford, and we're, we're happy to have you. I want to reiterate one of Jeff's other announcements, or one of Jeff's announcements. Uh, we have our FBH family class going on today, immediately following service. Um, and, uh, and we are pushing hard towards Easter. I don't know if you guys know this. It's just a couple weeks out, which is really exciting. We love the Easter season. Um, but one of the things that we're doing this Easter, and I don't know if you guys have done it in the past, my first Easter with you guys, so I'm excited about that. Um, but, uh, but we're going to be doing baptisms uh, during our Easter service. Uh, actually, Easter services, and we're going to make that announcement next week. We're having two services on Easter. One's at 9 o'clock, one's at 11 o'clock. So jot that down. You're going to need to figure out which one it is that you want to go to. Um, but, uh, but we're doing baptisms through that or, or, or during those services. And so this is your last opportunity. If you have not been baptized, if you are someone who has placed your faith in Christ and have not yet taken that step of obedience, to, to indeed get baptized, this is your opportunity to do so. Okay, so the class is immediately following service. It's right through there. Uh, come, you'll, you'll, you'll hear a little bit about FBH as a whole. You'll hear about membership, uh, but you'll also uh, get the opportunity to hear about baptism, what it means, um, and, uh, and then get the opportunity to be baptized on Easter. So again, it's your last shot to be able to do that. We're really excited about it. I think we already have 11 baptisms lined up, which is awesome. Um, and so we're, uh, yeah. Uh, so we're trying to push that number even more because, man, what a better way to celebrate the resurrection of Christ through the waters of baptism, right? All right. So uh, we're going to get into it. Uh, we, uh, we need to, we're going to move into the text. And we're continuing in our series called Under the Sun. And last week we got to Ecclesiastes 3. And Ecclesiastes 3 is fun because you can take a deep breath and you can recognize that, oh, okay, everything just has a season. And maybe uh, as you left, you, you put on the birds, turn, turn, turn for anybody who knows that reference. If you don't, Go look it up. Uh, the birds back in whatever decade it was, uh, 50s, 60s, I don't know, 70s, 60s. Okay, someone said 60s. I'll take your word for it. I was negative 25 when it came out. Um, and uh, they, uh, they have lyrics. They have lyrics to it that are verbatim Ecclesiastes 3. So go look it up. Go check it out. Uh, we actually played it immediately following service, but you guys were talking too much to be able to hear it. So anyway, uh, but we were in Ecclesiastes 3 last week, which puts us, uh, we're moving forward. We're trucking through the book. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 4 and 5 uh, this week. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip those open. Uh, if you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, that's okay. You got two options. One, flip to the table of contents. I do that all the time. Nothing to be ashamed of. The Bible has a whole lot of pages in it, so you can flip there or flip to about the middle of your Bible. You could probably turn right from there if you hit, it goes Psalms and then Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. If you hit Song of Solomon, you've gone too far. Uh, you'll be distracted for a while if you start reading in Song of Solomon. Um, but, uh, but if you've gone one book too far, you need to go back to, uh, to Ecclesiastes um, or just read Song of Solomon and completely ignore everything I say this morning, whatever. Um, but this week we get to talk about uh, we get to talk about man's driving factor. We get to talk about kind of what fuels man. What is it that drives man on a consistent basis? And we need to remember that as we're thinking through this, we aren't even talking about the people necessarily who are saved and who know Jesus. Hey, we're not talking about people who are living a uh, a godly life at this point. We're talking about the state of man. The state of man. And what I mean by that is, is the state in which we came into this world. And the state in which we came into this world is a sinful 
state. It's a sinful state. If you were to flip back to Genesis in chapter three, uh, you would see uh, what we call the fall of man, right? We see, uh, we see Adam and Eve and they, Adam and Eve do their thing. They eat the fruit and sinners and in, enters into the world. And from that point forward, every human has what is called a sin nature. And because of that sin, we cannot get to heaven apart from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's the very, very beginning of our sin nature. So man's natural state is one that is sinful. It's one that is sinful. It's, uh, it's one of the reasons that I hate that question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, the question's flawed, right? God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people because there's no such thing as good people. People are sinful naturally. Um, so man's natural state is one that is sinful. We're greedy, we're proud, we're lying, we're stealing, we're cheating, just overall bad, but we want to do whatever we can to make our time here on earth as great as we possibly can. That's what Ecclesiastes really is, is aiming at, specifically in this text. Is it Real, real quick, can raise. Anybody going on vacation this summer? Any vacationers out there? Okay, like five of you are going on vacation, you liars. Do me a favor, turn to the person next to you. Maybe it's not the summer this year. Turn to the person next to you. Remind them where you're going on vacation this year. Okay, go ahead and turn to them real quick. Tell that person next to you. Some of you just got informed as to where you're going. You're like, Hawaii, what? (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. Um, Vacations are awesome, right? I think back to last summer, my family got to go on just like this incredible road trip. We went to, uh, to Zion National Park, went to Bryce Canyon National Park, went to the Grand Canyon. I mean, it was just this incredible trip. Our boys still talk about it. And we loved that vacation. And, and some of us just kind of need vacations, right? We're like, we're like, I need to escape the mundane of my everyday life. I'm frustrated with my job. Uh, I'm frustrated with being a taxi to my kids. Uh, I'm frustrated with the heat of the valley every year, right? I mean, that's why most of you guys are like, I'm going to Cayucas. There's nothing in Cayucas except the ocean, but I'm going there because it's not here. Um, Amen. Amen. I'm just frustrated. And so because I need to get out of the normal to experience in our heads what is the incredible, we need to get out of the normal. We need to get out of the mundane. And today we're going to see that the author of Ecclesiastes is going to talk, not, talk about not only what drives us in our natural state, but that desire we have to get out of the mundane is not strange. It's not abnormal. Even though oftentimes what we have in the mundane is this desire to get more. In our everyday life, we have this desire to acquire more things, to get more money, to get more stuff, to keep up with the Joneses as it were. A lot of times when we talk about the state of our culture and our desire to be rich, to make more money, all that stuff, we assume oftentimes that money is what it is that drives man. But we assume that, that money is that driving factor. Solomon actually lets us know that money is not the driving factor of man. If we really dig deep here into chapter four, it isn't the desire to be rich. That's not what it is. It's not money itself. Right underneath that desire, we have the the desire that we have to be rich, we find the real driving influence, which is envy. And that's your first fill in the blank, that money isn't man's driving factor, envy is. Money isn't man's driving factor, envy is. Envy is one of those fundamental causes of human suffering. It's one of the fundamental causes. This is because we tend to compare our situations to that of other people in our peer group. 
right? The Joneses, <laughs> apparently. They're over there. <laughs> Warren Buffett put it this way. It's not greed that drives the world, but envy. For better or worse, honestly, Warren Buffett is probably correct. Um, uh, envy and jealousy cause us to act irrationally. We're willing to suffer for no reward, ultimately. Charlie Munger, he explains the irrationality of envy this way. The idea of caring that someone is making money faster is one of the deadly sins. And envy is, is a really stupid sin because it's the only one you could never possibly have any fun at. Right? Think about it. Think about all the other sins. Envy is the only one that you can't have any fun at when you're sinning. Right? Because there's always more to be able to accomplish. There's a lot of pain and no fun. Why would you want to get on that, that bus? In a rational world, all that should matter is that if we achieve our individual goals, then things would be okay. Things would be good. But we don't live in a rational world. Right? Not only do we let the success of others affect us, but we actively wish misfortune on them. Uh, there's a, uh, a German word that I'm going to do my best to pronounce. So don't... Schadenfreude. Guarantee that's not how it's pronounced. You can look it up later. But the word, the word for envy, it literally means harm joy. Harm joy. Like that's what envy is. It is we are pushing towards joy. We want these things. We want to get these things. But ultimately these things are harming us in the midst of trying to get those things. None of this makes any sense. Because in the end, envy is futile. And that's what Ecclesiastes is driving at over and over and over again. It's the futility of man. But in this specific passage, it talks about the fact that envy is futile. There will always be someone better than us. You are not the best person at anything. I know that's hard to hear, especially for the millennials in the room. I'm one of you. Okay, I get it. Mom and dad told us we were the best at everything, right? And so you can have a conversation with your parents later and say, you said I was the best at baseball. You're not, I promise. Okay. I'm not either. I had to deal with it. It's fine. Millennials, I love you. There will always be someone better than us. And ultimately, what difference does it make if it, it, how much you have? What you do, what you don't have will always amount to much more. Solomon tells us this in Ecclesiastes 4, 4 to 6. It says this. And I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. He tells us uh, unsurprisingly that envy leads to toiling for no reason and all that toil is chasing after the wind. We've heard this same type of ver verbiage before. It's futile. It doesn't matter. Right? Verse 6 is prescriptive in nature. When it says that it's better to have one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. At least have some tranquility in the midst of your toil. We must face the fact that we really do kind of just get into, get into the flesh. It's called being carnally minded. The desire for so much materialism can rob us of our peace and can ultimately empty out our financial resources. 
this desire of envy. We tend to strive to keep up with neighbors or feed off of every ad that we see or read. It's the I gotta have it syndrome. We can get so caught up and consumed by the first thing we see that we're not looking for the best thing that we need. We lack the fruit of the spirit that's patience, right? For, okay, I, I'll admit it. I love technology. I love gadgets. If Apple releases something, I'm going to do my best to persuade my wife that uh, this is like a kingdom purchase, right? Like Jesus has ordained this purchase, honey. We need to get it because we're going to be able to reach more people for you. Like I just love gadgets. Any gadget people in the room, right? Maybe some of you are, are clothes people and you're like, you know what? I need to look my best. I'm going to look better than everybody else. I want people to compliment my shoes. I want people to compliment the sparkly things hanging off of my ears. Like I, whatever it is, I want people, or maybe you're car people, any car people in the room grunt. If you're a car person, no, okay. I got a, a car person in the room. That's great. Whatever it is, there are things that we are naturally, we naturally drive to. There are things that we naturally want, but the problem with those things, those things aren't in themselves bad. They're not in themselves bad, but when they get in the way of us honoring God, that's when they become sinful. So, so we go back to this idea of the fruit of the spirit, patience, that part of the fruit of the spirit. Jesus has a plan to help us to exercise this idea of, of self-control and to be patient and to be wise in our financial decisions. It's actually in Matthew 6, chapter, Matthew 6 verses 19 through 21. He talks about the idea of treasures in heaven. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. It's not wrong to buy nice things, but it is wrong to be consumed by those things. It's not wrong to buy nice things, but it's wrong to be consumed by them. If they take up all of our time, if they take up our focus, then we need to remind ourselves that we need self-control. We need to be self-controlled. If we're lacking in the self-control department, then we're chasing after the wind, simply reaching for the next best thing, because if we can get the next best thing, we can establish a greater status. We can establish greater comfort. We can establish a greater life. Whatever it is that we perceive that next great thing. And the sad reality is, though, uh, that envy drives us to toil for nothing. Envy drives us to toil for nothing. Some people just keep on toiling, although they have no one to work for. And nothing to do with the money they make. They even deny themselves the pleasure of life in order to keep laying up money. And honestly, this is nothing new for the church, right? Immediately we think of the, the greedy billionaires outside the church, but whatever. Let's look inside the church, right? Scripture is riddled with story after story of envy and jealousy. We see it with Adam and Eve wanting to be like God and believing Satan's lies in Genesis, Right? We, uh, we see it with Cain's envy of Abel's offering, which ends up leading to murder. We see it when Joseph's brothers envy his father's blessing, not to mention his real colorful coat. You know, we could go on and on with stories like these, so it's no wonder that the tenth commandment is, Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. God isn't just telling us what not to do. He's warning us that the destruction of the sin of envy brings into our lives and brings into our relationships. 
Proverbs 14, 30 says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy, the author is saying, is a hidden sin that slowly destroys you from the inside out. It makes you rot. You may not smell the stench of envy right now, but eventually it will surface. Solomon goes on and reminds us that all of it is meaningless. In Ecclesiastes 4, 7 and 8, he says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Shocker. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with all his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. I was reading a blog uh, and the author uh, describes envy as it really is. It says, envy is unique among the sins in that you never, ever enjoy it. Envy never brings any satisfaction. If you commit the sin of adultery, you enjoy the fleeting pleasures of the flesh. If you commit the sin of gluttony, you get to enjoy the taste of food while it slides down your throat. These are very fleeting and fleshly pleasures, but they are pleasures still. Envy only ever makes you more miserable than you were before. Envy eats us up inside. It tears us up. It makes us miserable and bitter towards one another and brings no pleasure, brings no satisfaction. It is a sin that is rooted deep into each of our hearts and it has to be addressed on a daily basis. And it's one that we don't talk about nearly enough. We must seek to fight it before it destroys us. And ultimately, it it brings division to the body of Christ. While there there are are many ways to battle this sin, specifically we're going to look at a couple uh, that that are going to drive us forward. But but before we get to that, uh, anybody remember the name Howard Hughes? Howard Hughes. Anybody? Okay. For those of you uh, who are who, who don't know who Howard Hughes is, he's he was an American businessman. He was an investor. He's a record-setting pilot. Uh, he's an engineer, a film director, a philanthropist, uh, and he was known during his life as one of the most financially successful individuals in the entire world. He first became prominent as a film producer and then as an influential figure in aviation. Okay? So that's the Wikipedia version of uh, Howard Hughes. But when he died, Howard Hughes was worth $2.5 billion with a B. And he died back in the 70s. He was the richest man in the U.S. when he died. He owned a private fleet of jets. He owned a bunch of hotels. He owned a bunch of casinos. And when they asked to claim his body, his nearest relative, a distant cousin of his exclaimed, is this Mr. Hughes? He had spent the last 15 years of his life as a drug addict. He was, uh, he was too weak in the end to even administer the shots that he needed to himself, the drugs to himself. He was once six foot four. He shrunk to six foot one and weighed only 90 pounds. Not a single acquaintance or relative mourned his death. No one mourned his death. The only honor he received was actually, there was a moment of silence at his Las Vegas casinos, right? 
How would you like to be remembered for that moment of silence in the, in the casinos? Time magazine said, he said, it says Howard Hughes death was commemorated in Las Vegas by a minute of silence. Casinos fell silent. Housewives stood uncomfortable clutching their paper cups full of coins at the slot machines. The blackjack games paused, and at the crap, ta- crap tables, the stickmen cradled the dice in the crook of their wooden hands. Then a pit boss looked at his watch, leaned forward, and whispered, Okay, roll the dice. He's had his minute. And that's how Howard Hughes was remembered. The richest man at the time was remembered. Was a moment of silence in Las Vegas casinos. For all of his toil, for all of his wealth, he left his fortune to people who didn't even know him. He isolated himself, became a hermit as he amassed this fortune. And I think Solomon recognized the loneliness that envy can bring forth if we aren't careful with our search for more. The reason I think this is, uh, is because as he goes into verse 9, it becomes clear that we should find a partner who will encourage you in your futility. Find a partner who will encourage you in your futility. Actually, it seems like kind of a strange portion of scripture to, to, for it to be right here. We're going to read it in just a second, but it doesn't seem to fit because we're talking about envy. We're talking about toiling under the sun and amassing wealth and amassing treasure and all this stuff. And all of a sudden Solomon takes a break and talks about why it's important for us to have people in our lives. It says this starting in verse nine, two are better than one. Oh, you've heard this one before. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In summary, of all, in summary of that, even though man will and can work and toil until he has all the money in the world, And it will indeed be futile on this side of eternity. At least he has someone to help him along the way. At least he has someone to help him along the way. We never know what the next day is going to bring. We never do. It is ever so nice to know that if we go through a difficult time, someone is there for us. Someone is with us. Sometimes you might go through a series of hard things and you need, you just need someone to pray for you. Sometimes it might be a rough relationship with someone else that you're dealing with and you need to talk with someone about it to be able to get perspective. Maybe you're looking for, for insight into finding a spouse or finding a job. The point is, do you have anyone in your life who you are partnering with in your futility? Uh, we, uh, back in January, we did our, our vision series for the church. And one of the things that we're pushing incredibly hard for, uh, come the fall is our small groups. Okay. And the reason that we want to do small groups, and it's a small shift from Bible studies, and we're still studying scripture in the midst of it, but small groups and the importance of small groups is to make sure that you have people on your team, people in your corner. You get to share life with these people. You get to do, do things with these people. You get to experience joys with these people. You get to, to love them and pray them through difficult times. And the small group that Sarah and I were a part of before, before we came here, down when we were at HDC, that small group, uh, uh, two ladies had miscarriages at the same exact time in our small group. Absolutely devastating. 
But you want to talk about the body of Christ and the rallying of the body of Christ? It's these people that we had partnered with and we said, you know what? Whatever it is that you need from us, you got it. We made, we made meals. I went over and I prayed with, uh, with one of the couples before they had to go to the hospital and she had to deliver her baby, right? There were just incredibly difficult things that unless we were in community with them, unless we were partnering with them in the midst of our futility, we wouldn't have been able to be a part of that. We wouldn't have recognized that. We wouldn't have been able to support them in the midst of that. So Ecclesiastes is driving out, look, you're going to toil, you're going you're gonna to build up, build up wealth and you're going to do stuff that's, that, that ultimately doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But in the midst of that, make sure that you have people in your corner. No matter what the circumstance is, have you built relationships in such a way that you could find the help that you need? Relationships are incredibly important. People are important. And yeah, we can get some things done better without the fuss and time of people and their individual particularities, right? There's, there's a, uh, a famous quote, and it's famous, but it's an infamous quote that uh, surrounds ministry worlds. I said, man, ministry would be so easy if it wasn't for the people. And the reality is that's the body of Christ, right? The body of Christ, we, we need to talk through these particularities. We need the, the community of believers with us, surrounding us, allowing us to move forward, allowing us to recognize that, that man, we have a much bigger job here on earth than just simply toiling. There are people who don't yet know who Jesus is. And as the body of Christ, as we rally together, we can move that ball down the court. Chapter 4 wraps up by telling us that it's better to be young and penniless, uh, but willing to heed the advice of others than it is for us to be old, incredibly wealthy, and continue to toil for the sake of status until you die. But an interesting turn happens. Okay, and you can read through that if you would like. An interesting turn happens in chapter 5, where the majority of the chapter is taken up by Solomon writing a bit about vows and oppression, followed by the futility of riches and how it is they are futile. So he continues to march through this. For the sake of all of our sanity and all of us wanting to leave here, hopefully encouraged in some way, we're not going to go through all of that. But we get down to verse 18 in chapter 5, and we take it all the way to the end of the chapter. It says this in chapter 5, verses 18 and 20. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Our big takeaway for the morning is simply this. We get one shot at life. Choose joy. We get one shot at life. Choose joy. And don't put your notes away just yet. God created mankind to be joyful. Christians walking with a living God should express this incredible, intense joy in everything that they do, in everything that we do. God's purpose is our good and his glory. However, since the fall, we tend to choose that which is inferior to God, sacrificing the permanent on the altar of the temporary. 
We sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the temporary. Our immediate happiness leads us to surrender that which is permanent and good. Like, you know what? I feel like doing this right now, so I'm just going to do this. Man, I always come back to this, but it's, it's, it's exactly true 100% of the time. Raise your hand if you've ever tried to diet. Anybody? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We were re- eating really, really healthy, and then uh, Debbie Fox came to one of our boys' baseball games and made every cookie ever. Um, and so that's out the window because we're sacrificing the temporal for the permanent, right? We're like, you know what? But this would be phenomenal right now. This would be so good for us to eat right now, when in reality, we should probably just have celery and cry. (laughs) Consequently, when it's left to our own interests, we seldom discover what it is that is good. We know little of joy. We know little of intense, overwhelming joy that infuses us in every single facet of our lives. When we're unfulfilled and driven by envy, we lurch from one meaningless pursuit to the next, trying to find fulfillment. But the question remains then, what does this mean for us? If we're not to be driven by envy, but rather it is that we're supposed to choose joy, what should our lives look like? I would encourage you to go back to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6. Where it says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Let me say, tell you what that verse is not telling you. Okay? That verse is not telling us to throw our hands in the air and just do our best to enjoy our time here. It doesn't say two handfuls of tranquility. It doesn't say, you know what? Do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Go party. You know what? You deserve it, right? You deserve it. Do whatever you want. Just relax and enjoy life. Throw caution to the wind. Whatever it is that makes you feel good, you go. It doesn't say that. It's not what it's saying at all. It says one, which means in its context, the other hand should be full of work. So we have tranquility and we have work. So while we work, while we toil with our time here on earth, we should choose joy in the midst of the mundane. Write that down. Choose joy in the midst of the mundane. That isn't to say don't go on vacation. Go on vacation. But don't live for vacation. Don't wait for your vacations to choose to be joyful around your kids. Don't wait for your vacations to be joyful around your coworkers. This should be weird for you to go on vacation with your coworkers anyway, but you know what I'm trying to say. Don't wait for vacations to live for Christ, to choose joy in that. An overwhelming joy in Christ and a love for people should set us apart from the rest of the world. So I want you to hone in on what that looks like for you today even. What does it look like for you to choose joy today? In what space do you need to choose joy on a regular basis? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom who's regularly overwhelmed by, by dirty diapers and kids demanding more snacks, right? And that happens all the time. I'm like, where do you put all of this food and how do you have 2% body fat, child? Maybe that's you. I mean, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you're just completely overwhelmed by this stuff. Maybe you need to choose joy at work while your boss is asking you to do more than you signed up for. Maybe you need to choose joy in your marriage when your spouse 
leaves the dirty clothes on the floor again. Whatever it is, we need to consistently choose joy in and among our toil. Not wait to get a break to engage in a joyful season of life. And so often we think through, oh, if I can just get through this season. If I can just get through this season, then, man, it's going to be good. If I can just get through the first four months of babyhood, man, it's going to be so, we'll get some sleep and then we'll choose joy. Or maybe once we just get through the toddler stage, when they can't really communicate their needs, but their emotions are on red alert, man, if we can just do that, once we get past that, man, things are really going to iron out. I mean, once we get our kids into junior high, no, that's not a thing. Once we get our kids through high school, then, then we can choose joy after that. Cause then we'll be at home and it'll be quiet and it'll be clean. Or maybe once we, maybe, maybe we can choose joy once our kids graduate college and, and, and financially we have a little bit of breathing room all of a sudden. Then we can choose joy because our finances won't be strained. Or maybe we can choose joy once the grandkids finally arrive. Right, grandparents? Yeah, that's when you choose joy when the grandkids show up. And then they move in. <laughs> but then you can choose joy once the grandkids, but there's always a next season of life. It does go away. Ecclesiastes 3 is very clear, of that, clear about that. That seasons just keep rolling around and some are good and some are bad. And you don't have control over the seasons. And so if you don't have control over the seasons, what do you need to do? Choose joy. We have to choose joy in the midst of the mundane. Imagine what it would look like if we just consistently chose joy in our circumstances rather than choosing frustration. When one of, our, uh, one of our kids was younger, I would consistently tell him that, that our emotions don't dictate our actions, right? And you tell that to your overly emotional child, right? You're like, why are you crying? Like, just pick the pencil up off the ground. It's not that big of a deal, right? I don't know if any of you guys have kids like that, but, but one of our kids was like that. Just everything was a big deal. And dad, what am I going to do? Mom, what am I going to do? And so you sit him down and time out. And you're like, okay, bro, look. Your emotions do not dictate your actions. And it's easy for us to say that when we think, oh, it's a pencil that fell on the ground or a, literally a cup of spilled milk or whatever it is. We could, th- we could say that to a toddler, right? We could say that to a young kid like, hey, don't overreact. But then when we look at our own lives and the things that we're throwing hissy fits over on a regular basis, all of a sudden it's not so easy. And in context, maybe these things are bigger and they hope they're bigger than a pencil falling on the ground and you crying over it. I hope it's bigger than that. But the nice thing about emotions is that we can, we can control our emotions to an extent. We can decide that we are going to choose joy rather than choose frustration on a regular basis. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever season it is that you find yourself in, we get the opportunity to choose joy in the midst of the mundane. We need to choose joy in the midst of our toil. We need to simply choose joy. If we as a church went through our workdays being joyful, Man, the rest of our offices would notice a difference in our lives. The places where we work, the people that we interact with, they would know that something was different. Maybe those people in your oikos. And we talk about this here. Our oikos is what we would say that that God has supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people 
in your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. That means there are people already in your world that you know who don't yet know Jesus or who need to be encouraged towards Jesus. And so if you're already interacting with those people, if you already know who those people are, guess what? They're watching your reaction to life. They're watching how you are doing things. They're watching how you are marching through life. They're watching how you're marching through the mundane. They're watching how you're marching through your toil. And as they are watching it, we have two options. We can choose frustration or we can choose joy. And I know it seems weird for us to juxtapose this idea with envy and this idea with joy, right? How did we start with envy and end up with joy? It's because as we choose joy on a regular basis, as we choose the things of God on a regular basis, the joyful things of God on a regular basis, you stop caring about what other people have and you don't. Because you simply get to choose joy rather than comparing yourself to other people. You get to choose joy in church if we just decided to do that. If we just decided to be joyful in the midst of our circumstances. If we decided to be joyful in the midst of the mundane. People would be banging on our doors to get in here because they want to know why our lives look so much different than theirs. I walked into a church one time. Uh, I was visiting my brother up in college, uh, uh, up in uh, uh, Sonoma State. He went to school up there. We went to church on a Sunday morning. He had never been there. I had never been there. We walked in, and there was a pastor who was speaking, and he said something that has stuck with me for the last 15 or so years. He said, if people aren't asking, check how you're living. If people aren't asking why your life is different, you need to check how it is that you are living your life. And that stuck with me over and over and over again because I get to control my emotions. I get to control how it is I react to things. And I don't have it all laid out. I have frustrating days just like you all do. I, uh, man, I had to get all five of our kids ready this morning. Yeah, I talk about having to choose joy in the midst of just chaos, right? I swear, I comb like 15 boys' hair this morning. I have five. I'm like, How, where are they coming from? They just keep coming. But we have to choose joy in the midst of the mundane. Because people are watching. And as people are watching, it's our responsibility to represent Christ in that. To represent Christ in the mundane. To represent Christ in our toil. We get to give those people who have both supernaturally and strategically been placed in our lives by God a front row seat to what it looks like to be completely and totally in love with God and allow it, allow it to show through us. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're thankful for today and we're thankful for Ecclesiastes. And as difficult as a book as it is, and as seemingly as dark as a book as it is, we get to consistently come back to who you are in us and the fact that you renew us. That even in the midst of our envy, even in the midst of our toil, even in the midst of us wanting to amass more and more things on a regular basis, that even in the midst of, of all of that, you call us to something greater. That Ecclesiastes consistently points to the fact that yeah, things are futile on this side of eternity. You can do everything you want to gain riches, to gain power, to gain fame, Father. But ultimately, if we do it apart from you, 
If you aren't our compass, if you aren't true north, if we're not aiming towards you on a consistent basis, then it's all for naught. It is all completely and totally futile. And so, God, this morning, I would just pray for our church to, in the midst of the mundane, in the midst of our toil, that we would indeed choose joy. God, that we would choose to honor you in the regularity of our lives. That we wouldn't just wait for vacation. That we wouldn't just wait for the next season. That we would choose joy where we are currently. And God, I would just pray that, that wherever it is, for, for everybody in the room where they say, you know what, man, uh, man, there's just frustration at home, maybe in my marriage or with my kids or at work or wherever. God, I pray that, that right now we would, we would be able to, to visualize that space and say, you know what, God, I, today I'm going to put that frustration on the altar. I'm going to substitute that for joy, and I'm going to do my best to represent you with joy. I'm going to do my best to be joyful for you. And God, maybe there's those people who are in here who are new, um, who, who maybe just want to say, you know what, I want that joy. I want the peace of knowing that God is in my life, that God, you are indeed in control. And so for those people, I would just say with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, that you would just pray a prayer along with me that A, you say, God, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a savior. That I know I can't do it on my own. And I know I sin every single day. And God, I, I, I'm sorry for that. And I lay that on the altar. That B, that, that we would believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. So, it, so ultimately, God, it's not futile. Life on this side of eternity isn't futile. We get an opportunity to live for you. And I believe that, that you sent your son to do that on our behalf, that, that we are reconciled now to you forever. And to see, Father, we choose to follow you every single day. And those are our outward actions. That's our expression of love towards other people. That's our expression of love towards you, Father that we would consistently serve and love you and people well. ABC, we're thankful for you and we're thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys for, for coming today. If you have your Connect cards, you can drop them in the baskets in the back. And don't forget, FBH family, immediately following service, free food. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.